If there's one thing that characterizes us here in the United States of America, it is certainly our rugged individualism. Many Americans take pride in the fact that they are free. They aren't slaves to anyone. No one can tell them what to do. Now, we would all agree that freedom is a great thing, but sadly, many Americans have taken the notion way too far. What I mean is they believe they can do whatever they want to do and they aren't accountable to anyone for anything they say or do. After all, no one is going to tell them what they can or cannot do. And we are seeing the consequences of that kind of thinking all around us today. Whenever people adopt that kind of mindset, spiritual and moral and societal chaos results. One of the things that God has done to prevent that kind of deterioration is to set up certain authority structures in all of our lives. For example, all of us have parents. And when we are growing up in the home, we are mandated by God to honor, respect, and obey our parents. This is a protection from God, if you will, from foolishness and the consequences of foolish decisions. Furthermore, all of us live in a land where there are laws that we are supposed to obey. In addition to that, for those of us who know Christ, God's design is for His people to belong to a church where there are spiritual leaders who will teach them and oversee them and lead them. All of this is God's design. He never intended for any of us to live in a vacuum where we do our own thing or whatever we want to do without any accountability to anyone else. God has established leadership in the home, in the society, in the church, in every sphere of life. So when there is no leadership or when people refuse to yield to their leaders, the results can be devastating. Such was the case in Israel's history after the death of their great leader, Joshua. The story is recorded for us in the seventh book of the Bible entitled Judges. So if you're not already there, turn with me, please, to the book of Judges, which is the book we want to consider in this message. As we come to the book of Judges, we need to recall a couple things from our study in the book of Joshua. Number one, you may remember that God commanded Joshua and his army to wipe out every Canaanite city and civilization they came in contact with in the land. We may wonder why God would order such a severe type of action. And though we may not in this life know all of the answers, I think that there are some indications as to why God would give such a severe command. One of the reasons why God commanded that was because the Canaanite culture because of its religion, not surprisingly, was extremely wicked. The Canaanite religion promoted prostitution of both sexes. It promoted infant sacrifice. So it was a vile and corrupt system that God wanted obliterated. God knew that if the Israelites didn't wipe out every trace of it, every vestige of it, then they would begin to compromise with the system and end up corrupting themselves. So God commanded Joshua and his army to wipe out every Canaanite city and civilization they came in contact with in the land. And that is exactly what Joshua did. 
That brings us to the second thing we need to remember, and it is this. Although Joshua wiped out every Canaanite city he came in contact with, there was still much of the land that was yet to be conquered. In other words, to say it another way, Joshua and his army did not conquer all of the land, every square inch of it, every little village, every city, every civilization. Back up to Joshua 13 for just an example. Look, uh, before we look at Judges, look at Joshua chapter 13. And notice what we read in verse 1. Now Joshua was, was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there, are, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. And then in verses 2 through 6, the Lord specifies all the land that yet remain to be possessed. That's extremely important to keep in mind as we come to the book of Judges, because what happens during that period of Israel's history is that because of these many Canaanite strongholds, the people of Israel continued to have battles with the Canaanites, and unfortunately, they sometimes compromised with them. That's basically the story of the book of Judges. Now let's go back there to the book of Judges. As we come to the book of Judges, the children of Israel are in their promised land, the land of Canaan. The nation was a loose confederacy at this point in their history. That is why some of the judges ruled at the same time, because every one of the judges didn't automatically rule over the entire land consecutively. There was some crossover in their rulership. One of the key verses of this book is the very last verse of the very last chapter. Look at chapter 21, and it is no accident that the writer of this book closes his book with this statement. Chapter 21, verse 25, In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This statement was made back in chapter 17, verse 6, where we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is quite a contrast to what we saw in the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, 31 says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. As I mentioned in our study of the book of Joshua, it records no major failure by the people of Israel or its leadership. But the book of Judges is full of examples of failures. In fact, that's almost all that is recorded in the book. Judges 3, 7 says, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals, or Baals, and the Asherahs. That verse sadly summarizes what happened throughout this time period of Israel's history. In fact, the 350 years of the book of Judges have been called Israel's dark age. It is characterized by spiritual, moral, and national failure. Some of the most bizarre stories in Israel's history are recorded in this book. Some of the most wicked, some of the most heinous, some of the most unbelievable, as we'll see in our trek through this book by way of overview. And yet, and yet, Each time Israel turned to the Lord in repentance, he forgave. This is the continual cycle throughout the book. The children of Israel sinned. 
So God gave them over to servitude. Then they cried out to God in supplication. He responded with salvation. And this resulted in security for the people. Or to put it another way, the children of Israel rebelled. So God judged them with retribution. Then they cried out to God in repentance. He responded with restoration. And this resulted in rest for the people. That is the cycle that is repeated seven different times in the book of Judges. Same cycle seven times. So this book is all about God's faithfulness in the midst of all of Israel's failures. And that, of course, is one of the primary themes of Hebrew Scripture. You, as well as I, have read this this portion of God's Word, Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament, and we've often found ourselves wondering, why in the world did God choose the Jewish people to be His people? Look at all their failures. Look at all of their disobedience. Look at all of their wrongs. Look at how they refuse to follow the Lord. And beloved, that's the point. That is the point. The, 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 that section of Scripture, Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament, is a magnanimous display of God's grace and His undeserving choice of Israel. They didn't deserve His choice of them any more than we deserve God's choice of us. So this is what the book is all about. It's all about God's faithfulness in the midst of all of Israel's failures. God had promised the children of Israel that He would be with them as they completed their conquest of the land. But chapter 1 begins this book by telling us they failed to follow through on what God had told them to do. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. Judges chapter 1, verse 21. We read these words. Chapter 1, verse 21. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Of course, that is in reference to, to the time when the writer wrote this particular book. That is in direct violation of what God told the people to do. Not dwell with them. God had commanded Joshua and his army to wipe out every Canaanite city and civilization they came in contact with, and that's exactly what Joshua did. But now the children of Israel are letting down their standard. And they're comfortable dwelling with such a wicked culture. They are dwelling with the wicked Canaanite culture instead of wiping it out. Skip down to verse 27. <clears throat> we read, However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shan and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblaim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beit Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Anath were put under tribute to them. 
Again, I say, this is in direct violation of what God had told the people of Israel to do. They were supposed to destroy every Canaanite city and civilization they came in contact with because that was to be God's judgment on the Canaanites. And also that would prevent the people of Israel from being polluted by the vile culture and religion of the Canaanites. But the children of Israel refused to do what they were supposed to do. And let me tell you, they ended up paying the price for it. This is a perfect place to pause for application. And the application, the first one of this the study I want to bring forth is this, beloved. When we don't do what God tells us to do, we pay the price one way or another. We, we pay a price one way or another. For example, when we refuse to take heed to what God has said about marriage, to be the kind of husband, wife that we're supposed to be, or to, to choose the kind of spouse that God tells us to choose, when we refuse to listen to God, we are the ones who suffer the consequences. When we refuse to take heed to what God has said about finances, we are the ones who suffer the consequences. When we refuse to take heed to what God has said about sin, we are the ones who suffer the consequences. As Galatians 6, 7 puts it, what you sow, you reap. Now, you may not always recognize what the consequences are from, but mark it well. When we ignore what God's Word tells us to do, we are the ones who forfeit the benefits and blessings of God. That's exactly what we see in the book of Judges. Because the children of Israel failed to follow through on what God wanted them to do, they were the ones who paid the price and suffered the consequences, and yet amazingly, they didn't always connect the dots as to why they suffered what they suffered. They forfeited the blessings. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you uh, to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out uh, out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. Again, beloved, when we coddle sin and wickedness instead of dealing with it in the way God says to, we end up suffering the consequences. It's exactly what the people of Israel did. Down in verse 11, we are told, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals or the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies." Wherever they went, or whenever they went out, or wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. I can't urge you enough to deal harshly with sin. It pays awful dividends. If there's some sin in your life that you know about, don't ignore it. Don't treat it lightly like the children of Israel did concerning God's commands. Don't let it settle comfortably in your life like the children of Israel did with the false gods all around them. If you do, you're going to follow the same path that is described in the verses we just read. That sin will take root in your life and it will drive you farther and farther away from the Lord. So deal with it now. 
Get rid of it completely. That is what the children of Israel failed to do. Even when God mercifully intervened to deliver them, their hearts were so hardened that they wouldn't listen. We read in verse 16, it says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges. But they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Boy, I'll tell you, sin is a a heinous thing. It hardens the heart, it desensitizes the conscience, it dulls the spiritual senses, and it leads deeper and deeper into waywardness. Just like what is described there. It's one of the reasons God hates it so much. Verse 20 says, Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I will also no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. And beloved, that's what the book of Judges is all about right there. The false gods of the Canaanites were a continual test to the people of Israel, and sadly, the people continually failed the test. And once they hit rock bottom, they cried out to God for deliverance, and God graciously delivered them, but it wasn't long before they were back to their old ways, and so the cycle continued. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Don't miss the connection there. They intermarried and thus served their gods. This has been a favorite tactic of Satan down through the centuries. One of the ways he seeks to destroy or nullify the spiritual life of a child of God is by encouraging that person to get involved with romantically and even marry an unbeliever. I've seen Satan use that tactic successfully so many times through the years. When I was a youth pastor, I saw it happen with some of the teenagers with whom I worked. I could could count on this scenario. Whenever a young person began to take seriously his or her walk with God, it wouldn't be too long until an unbeliever of the opposite sex came into that person's life, and it wasn't just happenstance. Satan knows that if he can get a Christian man or woman to fall in love with an unbeliever, that almost always results in the spiritual life of the believer becoming stifled. Young people who are here, I warn you, don't lower your standard. Don't get romantically involved with or marry non-believers. When you do, when, when you get involved with someone who doesn't have a heart for God, you're on the road to falling away from the Lord. It's exactly what happened with the children of Israel. And so we read in verse 7, So the children, children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. 
When this happened, God became angry with his people and delivered them into servitude to the king of Mesopotamia for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer named Othniel. Verse 11 of this chapter tells us this. Verse 11, so the land had rest for 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. So under Othniel, there was rest, there was this restoration, but then the cycle continues. Verse 12, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon, and Amalek went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, that would be Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Verses 16 through 19 describe the fascinating way in which Ehud delivered Israel, but unfortunately time won't allow us to go into it, something that's worth reading on your own. But skip down to verse 30 where he reads, So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. But you know what's coming. Chapter 4, verse 1, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord sold them into the hand of of Jabin, king of Canaan. So here we go again. Same cycle, same pattern. Verse 3, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord for Jabin, uh, had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Once again, God mercifully raised up deliverers by the name of Deborah and Barak, or Barak. And their story is told throughout this fourth chapter. The last verse of chapter 5 tells us the land had rest for 40 years after this deliverance, but the cycle resumes in chapter 6. Verse 1, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Uh, you know what follows. Once again, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. We read in verse 7, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Still, still the Lord graciously raised up another deliverer by the name of Gideon. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 tells us, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And that is exactly what happened. Throughout chapter 7 and 8, we have the story of God using Gideon to defeat the Midianites. Skip over to chapter 8 for the summary. Chapter 8, verse 28, gives us the summary. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. But verse 33 jumps right off the page at us. Look at verse 33 of this chapter. We read, So it was as soon as Gideon was dead 
that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, who's Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. In fact, to elaborate on this statement, the people allowed one of Gideon's sons, whose name was Abimelech, to kill all of his brothers in order that he might take control. And that brings up another important thing to remember about the book of Judges. Not only were the people rebellious against the Lord, sometimes even the leaders acted very wickedly. Chapter 9 tells us about the wickedness of, of, of Abimelech and how God judged him. And that brings us to chapter 10. Notice chapter 10, verse 6. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Now, I don't know how you feel about all of this, but this is getting a little bit old, isn't it? I mean, you just read this over and over again, and to us, it's, it's sickening. So think how the Lord felt about this continual cycle with his people. In verse 10, we read this. The children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines also, the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the uh, Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best. You only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. What a statement. God is so compassion, compassionate. He had reason to completely ignore the request of the children of Israel, but instead he continued to have pity on them. What an amazing God. So he raised up another deliverer, and his name was Jephthah. His story is told throughout chapter 11. Skip down near the end of chapter 11 to verse 32. It says, So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered, the, delivered them into his hand. But sadly, it seemed like the children of Israel refused to learn from their past. Skip over to chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Can you believe this? When will they learn? Maybe the better question, when will we learn? We can be just like the children of Israel sometimes. Let me explain to you how. We cry out to the Lord when we are in trouble, and we promise to walk with Him and serve Him faithfully. But when things are going well in life, we forget all about the Lord. It's a good thing we serve a merciful and patient God, but we dare not presume upon His patience. Because even though he is merciful, there are consequences when we do this kind of thing. The children of Israel suffered the consequences for 40 years on this occasion. 
until the Lord raised up another deliverer. He is probably the most famous of all the judges in this book. His name was Samson. Skip down to verse 24 of this 13th chapter. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him from Mahanad Dan, that is the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. Samson's story is told throughout the next three chapters. He was used by God to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, but if you know his story, then you know that he himself wasn't always faithful to the Lord. He allowed himself to be controlled by lust. And that eventually led to his death when he told Delilah that the secret of his strength, that the secret of his strength was in his hair and she cut it off. Skip over to chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistine gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. And the people saw him. They praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened when their hearts were merry. They said, Call for Samson, that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison. And he performed for them, and they stationed him between the pillars. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temples, so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women, on the roof watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistine for my Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right, the other on his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel twenty years. Samson is a vivid example of a man who, although greatly blessed by God with unique gifts, throws away his potential to bring great glory to God. And sadly, tragically, Samson wasn't the last man to throw away tremendous potential to bring God glory. Many men have followed in his footsteps and have allowed the allurement of sexual immorality to destroy them. Samson's life is a stern warning to those who are prone to follow the path of sensuality. As we come to chapter 17, we come to what might be the saddest part of the book of Judges. Chapter 17 through 21 detail for us the terrible apostasy of the children of Israel during this time when they followed the sinful example of their Canaanite neighbors. By the way, these chapters, from the best we can tell, are not in chronological order. They seem to be appendices for the purpose of showing what life was like during this part of Israel's history. And let me tell you, it was bad. It was really bad. Indescribably bad. The children of Israel fell right into the trap of following the sinful example of their Canaanite neighbors. So these chapters serve as a warning, lest we would do the same kind of thing. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that it is very easy to fall into the trap of following the sinful example of people all around us. Very easy. 
That is why God continually exhorts us as his people to be different, to be unique. He says that throughout Hebrew scripture and he says it throughout the New Testament. Sadly, the children of Israel refused to heed him. In fact, chapter 17, verse 6 sums up what life was like during this time. We read in verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That says it. Everyone did whatever he wanted to do. The attitude was much like it is today. No one can tell me what to do. No one's going to tell me what to do. Here in chapter 17, there is an example of personal idolatry. In chapter 18, there is an example of tribal idolatry, as the entire tribe of Dan gave themselves to idols. Look at chapter 18, verse 30. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan, Jonathan the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. The spiritual life of the people of Israel was in complete disarray during this time. In fact, chapter 9, 19 illustrates this point in a bizarre, bizarre way. This chapter tells about what may be the grossest and most appalling incident recorded in all of Scripture. It reveals the fact that Israel was characterized by harlotry, disregard for human life, idolatry, drunkenness, rebellion, and sodomy, just to name a few of their sins. That was the depth of corruption to which the people had plummeted. The story in this chapter is about a woman who was abused and ravished all night by a group of perverted men from the tribe of Benjamin, and as a result, she died. Her master dismembered her into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. This prompted a massive war between the tribe of Benjamin and the other tribes of Israel. The first battle resulted in 22,000 deaths among the tribes going against Benjamin. The second battle resulted in 18,000 deaths among the tribes going against Benjamin. The third battle resulted in 25,100 deaths among the Benjaminites. Benjaminites. So over 65,000 men died in this civil war. In fact, this war just about totally wiped out all of the men of the tribe of Benjamin. And even after the war was over, the killing wasn't over because when the tribes took a poll to find out if any of their brethren hadn't supported them, they found out that Jabesh Gilead was in that category. So we read in chapter 21, verse 9, For when the people were counted indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and the children. What a horrible period in Israel's history. And that still wasn't all. Because as this chapter unfolds, we see an incident in which 200 women of Shiloh were kidnapped by men from the tribe of Benjamin. It's an unpleasant story in an unpleasant book. But it reveals the depth of depravity among the people of Israel during this time of their history. The last verse of the book appropriately summarizes what went on. Verse 25, In those days, 
There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone just did whatever he wanted to do. Those were dark, dark days. So what can we learn from this book? There are lots of things we can learn from this book, and I've mentioned some of them as we've gone along so, that, so as not to save all applications right at the end. But as we close, I want to center in on one application in particular, and it is this. I've already mentioned it several times, but I want to reiterate it. We need, especially, listen, beloved, especially as Americans, as American Christians, we need to see the wrongness of the kind of attitude that permeated this time in Israel's history because it's the same attitude that permeates our country today and sadly permeates much of the church today. It's the attitude that says no one is going to tell me what to do. I don't have to listen to anyone. I don't have to answer to anyone. Beloved, do you realize how much that attitude permeates our society? And what is far worse, do you realize how much that attitude has infected the church of Jesus Christ today? In fact, I'm certain. I am certain. I have no one in mind. But I'm certain that there are some people here who have that attitude. No doubt. And in a crowd this size, there are some who have that attitude. You aren't about to listen to anybody. You won't listen to your parents. You won't listen to your spiritual leaders. And amazingly, some people with that attitude, now hear this, some people with that attitude have convinced themselves that they are listening to God. That's the arrogance. They won't listen to any human authorities that God has placed in their lives. Human authorities that God has put there. But they convince themselves, well, I I only answer to God. I, I only listen to God. But remember, it is God himself who has established leadership in the home, leadership in the society, leadership in the church, and leadership in every sphere of life. So I warn you, when you think, when you think you can do whatever is right in your own eyes, and that you are not accountable to anyone, and you don't need to listen to people the Lord has placed over you, you are headed for some hard times. Guaranteed. You are headed for some hard times. So learn from the book of Judges. Learn from the awful choices God's people made throughout this 350-year period and the consequences they experienced from refusing to take heed. This is, this, this, the, the message of this book is a message that America needs to hear, but even more specifically, American Christians need to hear. Let's bow together as we close. Father, we read in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is your breath. All of it is given by inspiration, and therefore it's profitable for teaching, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So the book of Judges is God-breathed. The book of Judges is your inspired word. And as Paul said in both Romans and 1 Corinthians, whatever was written before, referring to Hebrew Scripture, whatever was written before was written for our learning. So we need to learn from this book. We need to learn from the awful examples that we see 
in the pages of this book of Scripture. And especially, Father, I think that we, we who live in 21st century America need to take heed to the message of this book. Because just like the people of Israel, we can allow our own society to influence us, to disciple us, to affect us, to corrupt us. That's what the children of Israel did. They, they allowed the attitudes and the actions and the choices and the lifestyle of people around them to affect them with devastating consequences. And we can do the same thing. Especially this attitude that permeates our culture, our nation. No one is going to tell me what to do. I don't have to answer to anyone. I'm free. This is the land of freedom. I have no accountability. I don't have to have to give account for anything I do. It's easy sometimes for us to stand off at a distance and see that the wrongness of that, but how subtly it creeps into our own lives, creeps into our own hearts, into our own attitudes. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit would make us be sensitive and aware of this tendency. If it's, if it's any, anywhere close to us, close to creeping into our own hearts and our own attitudes. And instead of having that type of approach to life, may we faithfully follow you. May we faithfully take heed to those you have placed in our lives as authorities, whether that's uh, young people who are here, young people who are still in the home who have parents who are in that position, or whether it's uh, those, all of us who live in a land of laws and law and order, that laws that we need to obey. And those of us who are a part of your church need to take heed to our spiritual leaders. So whatever the the realm is, may we be faithful to live life the way you want us to live life and not the way the people of Israel, your people, lived during the time of Judges. Teach us, warn us, rebuke us, protect us from being like this. We pray this not only for our own sakes, not only to make sure that we don't experience the the devastating consequences of such choices, but even in a greater way, we pray this because we bear the name of your Son, Jesus. We bear the name of Christ if we call ourselves Christians, and we want to represent him well. We pray we would do that until the day he takes us home. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen.